Please remember that the Lucy Pod is not a replacement for professional medical advice. If you have questions or concerns about your own amazing brain, please speak to a medical professional. I wish to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which I speak to you all today, the peoples of the Kulin Nation. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome back to the Lucy Pod. I hope that you are all well and are staying safe. I also want to wish you all a big, warm, happy new year. And honestly, it's what a year it has already been or, or, or shaping up to be. As I kick off with an episode that is truly, truly exciting and incredibly special. In today's episode, we are going on an extraordinary journey with an extra, extra special guest. Someone that I have followed since I was 15 years old. Someone whose TED Talk I would watch religiously when I was stuck in ADHD paralysis. Someone whose YouTube notifications I have on someone whose Instagram notifications I also have on. Now, I know you're all curious, so here's a little hint. Hello, brains. Ring any bells? That's right. I am beyond thrilled to announce that I'll be interviewing the one and only Jessica McCabe, the brilliant mind, or should I say brain, behind the iconic YouTube channel, How To ADHD and now the author of the New York Times best-selling book, How to ADHD. Now, if you know Jessica or you've seen her TED Talk or you follow her um, on Instagram or on YouTube, you're subscribed to her, and if you don't, what are you doing? You'll know that her story um, kind of, although it is unique, it resonates with many of us ADHDers. It kind of starts in the same way for many of us, failing hard at life, feeling like we're not doing well enough, and then going on a path of self-discovery and diagnosis and basically being able to put the pieces of the puzzle together that was her life and then creating a YouTube channel uh, where she helps people with ADHD and dispels myths and stigmas surrounding it. And it is honestly an honor to have her on. I have been watching her since I was 15. As I said before, since I was 15 years old, I have been watching her and I am now in my twenties and I still watch her, even though I have my own podcast and I give advice about ADHD and I talk about it. I still need my girl, Jessica. I still watch her. So it's really, really special that I get to have her on the Lucy pod and get to interview her. So Brace yourselves for an episode filled with fantastic insights, stories, experiences. Um, We talk about so much. We talk about ADHD being a superpower, TikTok and ADHD, neurodiversity, elephants, I mean everything. So stay tuned as we dive into this fantastic conversation right here on the Lucy Pod. So let's begin this year, this new year with exciting conversations, perspectives, and I think this episode is just the way to do it. So let's go. Let's give Jessica a very warm welcome to the Lucy Pod. Hi, Jessica. How are you? 
Hi, I'm doing pretty well today. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to have you. So I would, I have so many questions, but I first would love to hear about your book, How to ADHD, if you can tell us anything about it. Yeah, uh, one of the most exciting things is it's uh, it's officially a New York Times bestseller, which is really exciting. Um, the first week out, there were just enough people who supported, came out, bought the book, either in pre-orders or that first week that we made that list. And so I'm, I'm still riding that high. I think that's... It's really exciting to me that I finished a book, <laughs> but then to have it do so well too is, is just really exciting. Um, but for people who don't know about the book, this book is essentially everything that I learned about ADHD, which was everything about ADHD over the last seven years of doing my channel. Um, mm -hmm. I knew nothing when I started my YouTube channel, How to ADHD. I knew that I had ADD. I didn't realize it was called ADHD now. I didn't know that it was about anything other than focus. I, I really did not understand my brain. And so I set out every week to learn something about it, about why my brain works this way and what I could do about it, like how how I could, I don't know, cope in this world that kept expecting me to behave in neurotypical ways. And everything that I learned, I put on this YouTube channel. And now everything important that I've learned over the years is in this book. That's fantastic. I know you said everything important, but what are one, maybe one or a few things that you think are the key takeaways from your book that you've learned that someone with ADHD should know about? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Every single chapter is the takeaways for that topic. So it's hard to choose three takeaways overall. Um, but I would say there were three takeaways for the tools, for the, the strategies that I think that are really important for anyone with ADHD to, to use. I use them all the time and I recommend that anybody else does. And they're kind of broad, but one is take ADHD seriously. I did not realize how much of an impact this condition has on our daily life, on our well-being, on yeah. our lifespan. Um, mm -hmm. It really does impact a lot. And also ADHD comes with friends, right? So it's often not just the ADHD that we're dealing with, but often secondary anxiety or depression. Um, there's other conditions that tend to go along with ADHD. So it's not this cute, quirky, fun thing that I thought it was for so many years. It was actually wreaking a lot of havoc on my life, but I didn't know that. So I think it's really important to take it seriously and recognize that there, you know, these like funny moments kind of add up and have a huge impact. Forgetting my keys once is funny and cute. Forgetting my keys constantly throughout the day. And, you know, there's a lot of things that kind of can snowball out of control. Mm, mm. I, you know, when you said wreak havoc, that's a thing I say a lot on my podcast now because I was much like you. I And I still am this way. I find I really love being ADHD. I find it to be a really positive experience. I really like it. But then I thought about all the things that were just not so fun. And I often say ADHD wreaks havoc on my life. Losing my keys once is funny. The second time, I'm not happy about it. I'm in tears. Uh, I, you know, oh, I built a sim house when I was meant to be writing my essay. Like, that's a funny joke. But then my essay, like, falls behind. And, it, yeah, it isn't funny. And, it, and it, yeah, and it does pile up. So when you said wreaks havoc, that's, yeah, something that I say a lot. Yeah. yeah. And then the, the second one is um, find your community. Connect with other people with ADHD. Because if you're trying to explain what you're struggling with to somebody who's neurotypical, not only are they going to not really get it, but they're also 
going to recommend things that may not make sense for how your brain works. And so connecting with other people in the community does a couple things. First of all, it normalizes the struggles because these struggles are normal when you have ADHD. And so are the strengths. These traits can be this double, double-sided um, coin of, you know, sometimes it lands on the positive side and like our, our energy and our sense of humor and um, our divergent thinking is, is entertaining. It's helpful. Our, our risk-taking pays off. And then sometimes it really gets us into trouble. And so first of all, like we can connect with other people and have, have both the, the challenges and the strengths a little bit normalized and validated, but also the tips and tricks and strategies that people are going to recommend are going to be things that are more tailored to our brains. Um, which brings me to the third thing, which is to work with your brain, not against it. That's really important. For so long, I tried to make systems work for me. I, I tried to work for the system, right? Like, let me do all the things that I need to do to make this planner work for me. Yes. Let me do yes. all the things to right? like, Yes, yes. Yeah, let me make this job work. Like, let me be everything that everybody else wants me to be. And the problem is there was this gear grinding feeling of like, it's incompatible, but I'm still trying to shove this square peg in this round hole. And now I really do work with my brain. I pay attention to what does work rather than what I just think should work. And I, and I lean into that. I work at times when my brain works best. I do a lot of things that are paying attention to and honoring the way that I naturally work as opposed to just trying to fit myself to the situation. I try to choose situations that are a good fit for me. Mm. Accommodations, making things accessible and adaptable. I think people find it really hard to ask for help and to make things easier for them. But I mean, the object, the operative word is it's make it easier for you. It's, it's, it's going to be so much yeah. better if you have the, uh, the accommodations. They're not annoying. Yeah. They're not a nuisance. They're, they're going to make your life easier. Yeah, I think people, yeah, should ask for help more, especially, yeah, when you're, when you're ADHD and you, and you just, you do need a bit of um, extra help. Um, the next question I was going to ask you, because I talk about it a lot on my podcast, sort of how the ADHD term, the acronym is misleading, you know, deficit yeah. disorder and how that's, it is the case at times, but sometimes we have an abundance of attention. So can you sort of talk more about how that sort of, that acronym um, affects people's understanding of ADHD? Yeah, it's really confusing for people and it keeps people from getting diagnosed and it keeps even people who are diagnosed from getting the support they need. Because first of all, yeah, let's talk about attention deficit. It is not about an, a deficit of attention as evidenced by the fact that sometimes we can spend seven hours straight working on a project or playing a video game. Um, sometimes our attention is so engaged that we can't pull ourselves away. We get into hyper-focus. Um, and other times, yeah, we are paying attention to everything, right? Like our brains are bouncing around the room. We sit and try and work on homework and like every 30 seconds or, or more, sometimes every five seconds, like our brains are being pulled in all these different directions. We don't, um, we don't, uh, regulate the the input the same way as neurotypical brains do. Um, neurotypical brains kind of do this automatic thing of going, well, this isn't relevant to what I'm doing right now, so I'm going to ignore it. And meanwhile, we're like, what? What's going on over here? Like, <laughs> And our brains bounce around a lot, right? But a lot of people don't get the support they need because they think, you know, and parents will think, well, my kid can't possibly have ADHD because he can sit and play video games for seven hours. He can pay attention when he wants to. And that's yeah. the key, right? Like the things that are the most engaging, the most fun, the most entertaining, the most you know new and novel and shiny and of yeah. personal interest can can 
capture our attention, but that doesn't mean that it's a choice. It doesn't mean like, well, we're going to pay attention when we want to. And when we don't want to, we're not going to. It's, it's that this is how our brains work. Mm-hmm. So that, that first of all, and then we'll get into the H, right? So ADHD, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder. You don't actually have to be hyperactive to have ADHD. Not, there's not, a primarily, not. Right. Mm-hmm. There's a primarily inattentive presentation as well. And then there, there's a, there is a primarily hyperactive impulsive presentation. And then there's combined type, which means you, you would qualify for, for both, right? And mm-hmm. that's what I have. I have combined type. But even for people with combined type or the primarily hyperactive impulsive type, the hyperactivity doesn't always show up the way that we imagine. Like it's not always um, a little boy racing around the room, getting into trouble yes. and... Bouncing off know, the walls, yes. Bouncing off the walls, right? Like mm-hmm. it can mm-hmm. look like... You know, it can look like racing thoughts or speaking really quickly with no spaces between your words or having a million browser tabs open, right? That hyperactivity doesn't always look like physical hyperactivity. And so Mm -hmm. that's another one that really confuses people. Mm. And then disorder, there there are people who are like, is it a disorder? Um, Technically, yes, because it is impairing it's distressing it's it's deviant which just means like different from the norm if you have ADHD your brain does work differently from how the majority of the population's brains work um it does meet the criteria for a disorder however it's it's um it's a neurodevelopmental condition which is kind of like your brain's operating system as opposed to something like anxiety or depression which you can kind of think of as like malware where maybe you can reduce the symptoms over time or they can get worse um mm-hmm. ADHD symptoms tend to re- you know tend to stay I really a little like bit that characterization malware yep yeah mm. yeah yeah system yes mm-hmm. right so if you if you are depressed you don't that doesn't necessarily mean you'll always be depressed but most people with ADHD if you have ADHD you're not gonna grow out of it you're gonna have this your whole life this is how your brain works mm-hmm. right and it doesn't mean that something went wrong it's just because we live in a society that doesn't um, where this is the minority of how brains work and we we don't um, receive a lot of uh, understanding or accommodations, generally speaking, from from the outside world, it does create this distress. It does make it difficult. We are dysfunctional in many ways because, yeah. partially, because of this, um, just the fact that our brains are not accommodated. Um, much the same way, like if I didn't have access to contacts or glasses, like I would be very disabled in terms of my vision because I would not be able to see. I wouldn't be able to interface with society. I wouldn't be able to drive. I wouldn't be able to sit in a classroom and learn, right? But because I have glasses, because I live in a society that accommodates that, um, I'm able to I'm able to function normally, right? But with ADHD, yes. I can't, right? Mm, absolutely, yep. I think that's, I always say that, like, if you were in a world where you are the smallest, obviously, yeah, being small is going to be difficult. Whereas if you're in a world where things are made for smaller people, you're not going to see the difference that much. The systems we have in place don't accommodate people who are ADHD. And I think that's why it froze. I don't know where I was at. I was saying how, yeah, you know, the world is not designed for people who are ADHD. So yeah, obviously our symptoms are going to be exacerbated by the environment that we're in. That's not to say that it's, you know, environment causes ADHD, but it definitely, it, um, it doesn't, it doesn't help it, uh, at all. The next thing I wanted to ask you about again, on the train, on the train of thought about accessibility and making, you know, the world easier for people who are ADHD, 
Um, I'd like you to talk about the economic cost of being ADHD, how it affects sort of the world economically in the American context, because I'm an Aussie, I talk about it from the Australian context. So I was curious to hear your views on the, the economic cost of ADHD. Yeah, the economic costs are incredibly high in the millions or billions, depending on what study you're looking at and um, and what country you're looking at or globally. Um, I don't have the exact stats on me, but it's it's really remarkable how much it costs the economy. Um, and the interesting thing about it is that the the like a relatively small portion of that cost is supports and treatments and things like that. So the more we support and treat. Um, ADHD, the less these other costs will cost us, essentially. It's it's not actually costing us that much to support it compared to what it's costing in terms of, um, I'll, I'll give an example from a workplace, like absenteeism, presenteeism, um, uh, turnover, employee turnover rates. If somebody with ADHD is not able to keep their job or is not able to stay engaged at their work, um, those turnover rates are going to cost those employers. Um, we know that prisons are disproportionately populated with people with ADHD, and that's very expensive. Um, yeah, for a number of reasons. Um, there are, yeah, there was one study that found 40% of people who are incarcerated in the United States have, have ADHD. Oh my God. And that's, it's, it's huge, right? Um, but it's, it's the impulsivity, it's the emotion dysregulation, arrest rates are higher. Um, we have, we have these issues that, that can be avoided. Um, and it, and it's costing, I think I think it's also costing society a lot in in costs we can't even count because people with ADHD were the inventors and the creators and the the world changers and there's so much that we can do um, if we're given the right supports that the world is missing out on to be frank so yeah. there's there's that to you know there's that cost to society but there's also the cost to us individually there's something called the ADHD tax that yes. this community talks about a lot which is just the money that we end up having to pay just because we have ADHD um, and because, you know, we we pay this money in late fees, in vegetables we forgot were in our fridge that now go bad. We pay this this fee in, in terms of rush shipping costs because, wait, Christmas is when now? Um, it's next week? Oh, shoot. Now it's too late to get this thing. I have to pay for, for rush shipping. There are so many extra yeah. expenses that people with ADHD incur because we make, you know, quote unquote, careless mistakes, which are really inattentive yeah. mistakes. Um, you know, I filled out the form to, you know, to do the thing, but like, I forgot to do something right. And so now I owe all of this extra money. Um, there's, <laughs> yeah. I, lo I lost a job once because I had a, I had a broken taillight and I got a fix it ticket for that. And I went and fixed the taillight, which by the way, was already a lot of hoops to jump through. But I forgot to go and show the sheriff station that I had fixed the light. In my mind, I had checked that off in my brain. Like they said, yes. fix this. I fixed it. I forgot to show them that I fixed it. So I I ended up getting my license suspended. And I didn't even realize that until like, you know, <laughs> I got like the seventh, you know, notice in the mail that I finally opened or whatever. Um, and by then, yeah, my license had been suspended. So I, I fixed it, right? Like I, I did everything that I needed to do. <laughs> but, but then when I went to, to apply for a job, 
it was a really good fit. It was this, it was this company that was going to hire me and give me like a real office job with a company car. And I was going to be selling copiers. I was really excited about it. I'm such a nerd. Like I wanted to sell copiers. It sounded oh, super exciting. They were clearing out a desk for me and the background ch- check came back and I have not gotten in trouble with the law. Like I, I'm pretty squeaky clean. So I was not worried. This background check came back and they were like, we can't give you the job because of what's in your background check. And I said, what's in my background check? And they said, you had a suspended license. And I was like, oh my God. They were like, we can't give you a company car because your license got suspended. And I was like, it wasn't even for bad driving. Like it was for, I had a broken tail. That's so And how cruel. They were going to give you a company car. Like that's the cruelty of it. And then, oh. I know. I was so excited. I was so excited. I was like, oh, I'm going to be a real adult. No, I can't be a real adult because, you know. I'm bad at adulting because I have ADHD. <laughs> and my brain doesn't work uh, the same. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Yeah. So that's another thing is society is just not very forgiving not. and or very error tolerant, which error tolerance is really important in order to make something ADHD friendly. It needs to be okay to show up a few minutes late to work. It needs to be okay to make one little mistake and, and, you know, there's so much that we have to offer. There's so much value Absolutely. that we bring to the table that kind of gets discredited or discounted or there's this this barrier of like you can't you don't get to sit at the table you don't get this place at the table because you don't because you don't have a brain that won't occasionally make a mistake right um i'll give you another another example there was this was brilliant like there was a doctor in training who mm. i talked with for a while and he said that he was put on this kind of probation where he would have to do a lot of things to make up for the fact that one day he came into the clinic and mm. he he had a bad day. He had a bad brain day and he missed a couple of things that were, you know, that he shouldn't have missed that quote unquote were obvious or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so they put him on this whole like, re, you know, almost remedial program of like, you have to make up for it and show us this and this. And he's like, well, here's the thing. I'm still going to have ADHD. And also I already like, I'm doing my best with all of, you know, getting to all the classes and doing all the clinic hours and doing all this stuff. And, and on top of it, I have to go to my doctor. I have to go to my therapist. Like I have to do all this stuff to manage my ADHD. And now they want me to do extra work as well yeah, on top of it to correct. Yeah. Right. And he goes, well, should he's like, it brings up a good question. If I'm going to make a careless mistake every once in a while, does that mean that I, as a doctor, like I, as somebody with ADHD, shouldn't be a doctor. Should people with ADHD not be doctors because every once in a while we're going to miss something. And he goes, but here's the thing. My patients love me. I'm really good at what I do. Mm -hmm. I'm not always going to be perfect, but I'm really good at what I do. And when I show up and I'm on, like I'm, I'm amazing. Right. And so it just, it brought up an interesting thing. And I think Mm -hmm. the answer is no, like people shouldn't be barred from the table or kept from the table just because they have ADHD from participating. Yeah. In society. Yeah, absolutely. What we need is redundancies. We need somebody who can check our work or we need some, you know, we need, we need a little bit of flexibility or we, there's, there's different ways to accommodate it so that we can bring the gifts that we have to the table in a way that's going to work for everybody. Absolutely. And I find, I think, yeah, that experience with that, that doctor, I mean, that's really awful because if you think about it, even in jobs I've had in the past, not even current one, I love my current job, they're great with me, but even past jobs, um, co-workers would make pretty big mistakes. And because everyone knew that I was ADHD, it was so much easier that when I made one mistake, it was like, yeah, it's kind of a big thing. But then my co-workers who would make really serious mistakes that were really rather inappropriate, 
it was kind of let go. Like it's so much easier to blame the person who's ADHD because, yeah, you're a mess, you're forgetful, you don't know what you're doing, you're a liability, when actually it's somebody else who's causing uh, a lot of problems and I'm actually really good at my job and I'm really confident and I'm really, you know, people like me, like, you know, this doctor. And, yeah, I just find that... um. I find that really, really sad. And I don't know how I feel about calling it ableism, but it is a sort of discrimination, I would say. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, you were discriminated against Mm. on the basis of a disability. And that's, I mean, it's, I don't know there, but here it's, that's illegal. It happens, but it's illegal. Yeah, it, 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 it. Yeah, it is a form of discrimination. I mean, look, at the time it was fine. It was, you know, it was casual jobs and all of that. It, it is whatever. But now in a job that I have, I know that, that that wouldn't happen. If it did, I'd be way more vocal and placed to um to talk about it. Uh, the next thing I want to talk about sort of going more into, you know, we've talked about the economic impact, the tax and all of that. And we've talked about how ADHD can wreak havoc. I want to get your take on how do you feel about sort of how people are accused of and sometimes are sort of glamorizing ADHD, particularly on platforms like TikTok. We see a lot of people sort of making it this quirky thing and it sort of invites the whole everyone's ADHD, everyone's getting diagnosed. It's this generation where they all want to be ADHD. How do you feel about that? What's your what's your take? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I think it's good that we're shattering a lot of the stigma and showing more of the positive sides. Mm-hmm. Where I start to have a problem with it is when we're kind of in denial about the the negatives or the challenges, where it's just like ADHD is a superpower and that's it. Like, And we're not going to acknowledge the challenges or whatever and like, look how great it is. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's naive to think that ADHD isn't going to impact your life negatively because if it wasn't impairing, you wouldn't have gotten a diagnosis, right? That's- and so like, it's important to acknowledge that. Um, the good thing is like the ADHD symptoms are going to be there. But the level of impairment can change depending on the level of support you're getting. So I've done a lot to put supports in place so that my ADHD flips to the positive side more than the negative. But there's also privilege there. There's a level of privilege. I can afford a housekeeper now. So I you know, I get a reset and I'm not like drowning in my own stuff the way that I used to be. Um, I can find my things because, you know, because... I, I have to label things so that the housekeepers know where to put them and stuff. So like there's, there's privilege there. Um, yes. A lot of the people who are, who are saying ADHD is a superpower and that there's no challenges that come with it. Um, frankly, they are coming from a position of privilege. Yes, absolutely. Um, and mm-hmm. so I think it's important to recognize like, yes, in certain situations with the right support, you can lean into your ADHD strengths and not be as impaired by the mm-hmm. challenges. But mm-hmm not that's not true for everybody and so i think a lot of the people who are upset about the glamorization of it are people who don't have as much privilege who are going this is fucking up my life like this yes. is destroying me i can't get out of debt um you know my credit is ruined and i i literally cannot work another like i'm already working two jobs and trying to dig myself out of this hole and like you're coming here and telling me like this is this great thing it has destroyed my life right, right? so i think that you know people are coming at it from different perspectives um, yeah, but I, I, I like, 
What's that? No, I said I, I, I totally agree. Um, it, it is a definite privilege, um, you know, being able to be medicated, have a psychologist, a psychiatrist. I live at home. I have supportive parents. I have supportive friends. So it's really easy for me to say it's so great. It's my superpower. It does this. But then you've got someone else who's like, I don't have parents who support me. I can barely get my medication. It's so expensive. What the hell are you talking about? Like it's a slap in the <laughs> face. Yeah. So I, I totally agree. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a, there's a really cool story that I like. I think it's a Buddhist story about, um, about the elephant. Like there's, there's like, I'm going to butcher this. Right. But it's, it's interesting <laughs> enough. I'm going to try to tell you anyway. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> but there's, there's, um, there's these, these blind men or in some, in some versions, they have blindfolds on and they're feeling different parts of an elephant. And so one of the, one of the, one of them is feeling an elephant's side and says an elephant is like a wall. And somebody else is feeling the elephant's tail and going, what are you talking about? An elephant is like a broom. And somebody else is feeling the elephant's tusk and says, no, you're both wrong. An elephant is like a spear. They're all correct, but they're all coming at it from different perspectives. And so I think it's really important for us to listen to each other's perspectives and recognize that ADHD can be all of these things. ADHD Mm -hmm. can be this, you know, can feel like a superpower. ADHD can be disabling. ADHD can be all of these different things. It just depends on where you're standing around the elephant. Yes, I really like that. I'm going to use that now and I'm going to give you credit. I really, I really, really like that. And then another question I have on the same thought, sort of I see a lot, I, I'm, I'm off TikTok. I had to get off it because I was getting obsessed with it. But sort of the pathology, how do you say, pathologi- pathologizing normal behaviors and calling them ADHD, like those videos where they go, I never realized that rubbing my feet to bed meant that I was ADHD. And then I would find myself going, <laughs> yeah. I don't rub my feet to sleep. Am I really ADHD? Am I ADHD enough? I don't do this thing. How do you feel about that and sort of those behaviours and we kind of tack on terms? Yeah, I think we're all looking for for answers, right? And so I I ended up doing my own TikTok um, of that trend of like signs you have ADHD, right? And I was like, signs you have ADHD, can also be signs of a different condition, right? It depends. Yeah. And so you deserve to know what's going on with you and your brain. And it it's very complicated, even for professionals to tease apart what's ADHD, what's anxiety, what's just, that's your personality, right? Like it's, it's tough to tease that apart. And mm-hmm. so any, anybody who's like, this one thing means this one thing, like it doesn't work that way, right? Rubbing your feet together, um, can can mean you have restless leg syndrome, which is common with ADHD, but restless leg syndrome is also common with pregnancy. And also maybe some people rub their feet together because it's a self-soothing thing and they have anxiety. Like there's all these different reasons yes. for the same behavior, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And so I think it's really important to, to understand that. Um, there's also a trend of like the autistic urge to or the ADHD urge to. Yeah. And it, that can be problematic too because it can make it feel like it's just this one um, condition that causes this. And so then there's a lot of people going, wait, am I autistic? Like, wait, do I have ADHD? Who maybe don't, but at the same time, it is helpful. Like I, I noticed when I was reading the research and there, there was this research on rejection sensitivity in ADHD going, oh my God. Okay. I didn't know that 
mighty she had anything to do with why I was so sensitive. That's yes. actually really helpful to know. Mm-hmm. Now, rejection sensitivity is not unique to ADHD. Not. It exists in other conditions as well. So that's so, really important to know. But it also is helpful. I get it. It's helpful to be to feel understood, to be like, oh, that's why. That's why I do the thing. And there were research papers I read with tears streaming down my cheeks because I was like, this explains so much. So I'm kind of on the fence, right? Like I get it. And also I think it's really important that we, when we consume this content or when we make this content, that we recognize that these things are not unique to ADHD. Um, they might be more common when you have ADHD. Yes. And it might, you know, the ADHD might explain some of this stuff, but it's not unique to ADHD. And just because you do this behavior doesn't mean you have ADHD. ADHD. Yep. I, I, and it doesn't mean that if you don't do this behavior that you're not ADHD enough and that it's, um, yeah. And it's good that you mentioned rejection sensitivity. um, What is it? Dysphoria? It's dysphoria. Yeah. The research is on rejection sensitivity. Rejection sensitive dysphoria is a term that was created by Dr. William Dodson. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was based on what he was seeing in his personal practice. This is not a research-based term. This is one doctor going this this, this is, is this seems to be going on, right? So there's some confusion around that. It is not an it's not a diagnosis. It's not in the research. It's something that I would love to see research be done on. But a lot of people with ADHD really resonate with that because rejection sensitivity is so prevalent in our community. Um, when there's a term introduced and it sounds like this very official sounding term people understandably latch onto that, right? So I did an episode on rejection sensitivity where I dive into that and I explain it. Mm-hmm. And I explain it, right? Um, the challenge is when people say, well, I have rejection-sensitive dysphoria, therefore I can't go to this party. Um, because we actually know, right? Like uh, I have this thing. It's it's almost like, well, I have, I I am allergic to pollen, so I can't go out in the, the field of flowers. So yeah. it, it people kind of say it like, well, I have this thing, so I can't do this thing. Yes. And that's actually really problematic because we know that um, social support is really, really important for a number of things, including our happiness. It is the greatest predictor of happiness is how much, you know, and the quality of the social support that we have. And it's very protective as well, because people with ADHD, we can find ourselves in some really interesting um, predicaments and we need the support. We need those supports. And so um, what I tried to do in the episode that I did about rejection sensitivity was validate it and talk about it. And this is a very real thing. And at the same time, how do we move forward and still have social interactions even with this rejection sensitivity that we experience? Mm. How would you talk about rejection sensitivity? Because for me, I think I've been guilty of sort of being like, I have rejection sensitivity dysphoria, so I don't want to hear your feedback on my writing or on my podcast episode. Um, it's just like, yeah, that's just not how it works. How would you sort of characterize it or what? And, you know, shame, not shame on me, but it's silly of me because I haven't looked it up. I just saw the definition and I thought, yeah, that's that's me and I haven't gone deeper. So what what have you found that that means and what does that mean to you? So rejection sensitivity um, in ADHD specifically seems to be a combination of emotional dysregulation, which is well-researched in ADHD, combined with a history of actual rejection. A lot of times we we are actually rejected by our peers, especially when we're younger. And the goal for everybody is that you go through a phase where fitting in is really important and you're kind of ostracized if you don't fit in. So people with ADHD often do get actually rejected and in, in, and not just by our peers, but we, we receive way more corrections than our neurotypical peers from teachers, from parents. And so that, that combination of we are more likely to be corrected or rejected 
as well as when we are, we have difficulty regulating the emotions that we feel. So we feel this really intense pain. It's a really understandable thing that we start to perceive rejection maybe where it isn't there and like be afraid of rejection and not take the chances, um, not put ourselves in situations where we might be rejected. And that is, I will say it is a valid strategy, right? In terms of emotional management, emotion regulation, one of the ways that you can do it is to not put yourself in those situations. Remove yourself Right. And there are times in my life where I'm not doing well and it's not a great time to put myself out there because I'm not doing okay. Right. And so like, I need to be a little bit more protective, but there are other ways to manage it as well. And what we know is if we have this anxiety about being rejected, anytime you have anxiety, avoiding the thing can actually make that anxiety worse. It can heighten the anxiety. Whereas Mm -hmm. exposure, there's a reason exposure therapy works. Exposing yourself to these situations can kind of decrease your sensitivity to it. Mm -hmm. And so if we are, you know, perpetually avoiding situations because of this fear of rejection, that can be really counterproductive because then when we do experience rejection, we can't freaking handle it. It's a shock. Yeah, it's a shock to the system. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a shock to our system, right? Whereas if you go, okay, let me like expand my window of tolerance a little bit. Let me do something. Let me, you know, say something on the internet that maybe not everybody will agree with. And then like, and then if, if that's okay, like maybe I can, you know, go, maybe I can try going to this party where maybe it's not a high stakes situation socially, but like, it's still a little bit uncomfortable, but it's okay if people don't like, right? Like you expand your window of tolerance over time, or you can do things that, that make it a little bit easier. Like, um, you know, if I, if I go to a party and I bring an appetizer, like (laughs) that's going to maybe make people want to talk to me. Like there's things you can, there's things you can do. And I think that that's my appetizer. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So I don't want to say like that, that, that it's wrong to avoid situations, but if we're chronically avoiding situations, we can miss out. We can miss out on social opportunities. We can miss out on, work opportunities. We can miss out on that raise. We can miss out on um, the opportunity to do things that are really important to us um, and not give our chance, not give ourselves a chance to, to grow. That we deserve to be a part of. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree. The other question I had is about sort of time perception, because a lot of the time we hear the term time blindness thrown out with ADHD, I think people misuse it a bit that like, they have no perception of time, that they're blind to time, but it is a bit more complex than that. Um, how would you discuss sort of the perception of time or the soft sense of time or time blindness? Yeah, so soft sense of time is a really good way of putting it. So some people have a really sharp sense of time and they can kind of tell exactly how long the bath has been running or a pot of water has been boiling or whatever. Like they can sense how much time has passed. They Their brain picks up on cues from the environment, light cues, sound like different cues that say time has passed and they can kind of tell how much time has passed. People with ADHD have generally speaking a more soft sense of time. Not, this isn't true of everybody, but a lot of people with ADHD have a softer sense of time, meaning um, time can pass and we can be like, oh, that was five minutes, but it was actually half an hour. Um, or, you know, or it's been hours. Like you've only been doing the dishes for three minutes. Um, yes. we can, we can, and our, and our perception of time is also colored to some extent by our emotions. So if we are, and we, again, have emotion dysregulation. So if something is really intense and painful for us, um, 
like waiting in line, it can feel like we've been doing it for ages when it's only been a couple of minutes. Um, so that's an interesting thing. But also we have a hard time estimating how long tasks take. Yes. So that's yes. another big challenge. So even if somebody has a sharper sense of time and can say it's been half an hour, maybe they maybe they gave themselves half an hour to do a task, but it's it's actually going to take them two hours to do this task. So the the potentially softer sense of time combined with this difficulty with planning how long things take um, can really throw off our schedules. So time blind is one way to put it. Um, I like the term time nearsighted because it's not that we don't see time at all, yes. but it's fuzzy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like we just don't see it. Yeah. We always see it well. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I really like that. And to sort of finish up and wrap up, I want to talk about the future of ADHD awareness and sort of where do you see the future of ADHD awareness, such a nebulous term, and the support heading and sort of I think we've come far, like we now say neurodiverse, there's this big thing about neurodiversity and I think we're coming to being more accepting, or I don't know, accepting, but more aware. I don't really know what to call it. What are your views on that and where do you see it going? Do you see it getting better, worse, the same or not sure? Oh, it's getting so much better. I talk about this in the last chapter of my book, which is okay. how to change the world. Um, the rest of the book is all of the things that I learned about essentially how to change myself, like how to get better at this stuff, how to motivate your brain, how to sleep, how to focus, how to, um, how to, how to do all these things. Right. But the last chapter is how to change the world. Because what happened is I got to the end of my journey and realized I still have ADHD. I still struggle with all the things that people with ADHD struggle with. And yes. it's not that it, it's not that it didn't get better. It got better in many ways. And I talk in that chapter about the ways in which things improved for me. But what didn't happen was I was not neurotypical. Like I, no matter all of the strategies that I learned and everything, no matter what I learned about my brain and all of the tools and everything that I picked up for working with it, not against it, I still couldn't, couldn't um, pursue neurotypical goals in a neurotypical way. Like I, it, it I still had an ADHD brain and I yes. still face a lot of the challenges that I face. I still have um, impairments. I still have relative deficits in working memory. Um, my brain is still what it is, right? I'm more effective now because mm -hmm. I have this toolbox and I know when and you know when to use tools, what tools to use. I, I have this awareness and I also have a, a better understanding of who I am and, mm -hmm. and that that's okay, right? That I don't have to be neurotypical, that there's value to to who and how I am as well. Yeah. Um, but the big difference that I talk about in that chapter that I've seen in, in the world is we are talking about it now. When I started, nobody was talking publicly about ADHD, yeah. at least not in my circles. And now yeah. I go to a restaurant and people are having open conversations about ADHD and not yeah. even just people with ADHD. There's people going, oh yeah, my partner has ADHD and he struggles yes. with this and this is how yes. I'm supporting him. And I'm like, what is going... This is amazing. It's amazing it's to me. Yeah. And it's been a, a very short period of time. It's been seven, eight years since yeah. I started. And at first it was like, oh, we can talk about this? Like, yes. this is okay. And people would start talking in the comments and in, in my community. But now these conversations are having happening in the workplace, in, in restaurants, among friend circles, like in relationships. And it's so wonderful to me because the more we talk about it, the more we're going to understand it, 
right? There's going to be some misunderstandings too. Naturally, oh, people are going to communicate it yeah. and people are going to misunderstand it. That always happens. Um, and on TikTok, there was a study that found like something like 52% of the of the information on TikTok was incorrect about ADHD. And somebody sent that study to me. And at first I was like horrified. I'm like, oh no, what have I done? Like, have I started this, you know, let's talk about ADHD on the internet and we're getting it wrong half the time. Yeah. And he goes, but how wonderful is that? And I was like, what do you mean wonderful? And he said, well, well, it used to be that most of what people said about ADHD was wrong. And now it's only half. And I'm like, you know, that's a really good point. We are as a society, getting better at understanding what ADHD actually is and talking about it in ways that help people understand the realities of it as opposed to this stereotype that for so long was so pervasive. And the fact that we can talk about it openly is also going to change the world. And I've, and I talk about in that chapter the ways in which it already has. Yeah, I, I really like that. I think that's a really nice note to finish on. And I'm, I'm really keen to read your book because I found in Australia, a lot of there's some ADHD literature and we talk about it and sort of that stuff, but it's still coming from a very academic and sort of medical point, which is really important, like to have it be clinical. We can't just have random lay people talking about it, unverified, but a lot of the literature is super like, you know, let's talk about, you know, the brain, which is super interesting. And then the other end are books and they're like for colouring in and their sort of mindfulness and they don't really target my sort of demographic. And I guess they they serve a purpose for somebody else, maybe a parent who has an ADHD kid who's wanting to learn or give their kid a colouring book. So I think your book is a great step in that. And I'm really keen to write an ADHD book and talk about my experience. What's a piece of advice you could give me or someone else who'd want to do that and write about, you know, ADHD? First of all, do it. Do it because... Yeah, it's it's really it's really easy to be like, oh, but other people are doing it. Yeah, but nobody else is you. You have a unique perspective. You have a unique voice. You you can speak to experiences that I can't speak to, right? And so I think it's a really great idea for more advocates to be putting content out there, um, especially in a book form, because then we can, you know, unlike a TikTok where we might turn it around really quickly and not have time to fact check, for a book, you can. You can fact check, you can do your research, you can provide citations, you can do all these things. So you can filter these things through your personal experience, but also make sure that what you're sharing is accurate information. And we need more of that. Um, but in terms of actually getting it done, don't do it alone. So do it, but don't do it alone because it is a very long term project, which is something that people with ADHD tend to struggle with. So if you don't have support and you're doing it all yourself, it's going to be really easy to get discouraged and bored and, you know, have it take way longer than it otherwise would and give up. And, you know, it, it was, something I had to do really early on was swallow my pride and reach out for help because I wanted to write a book and I wanted it to be my book and I wanted to write it all by myself. And yep. the truth That's is like, I, right, I yep. have organizational challenges. And so trying to, trying to figure out the structure of the book completely on my own and, you know, cram a bunch of stuff in my first chapter, like it just wasn't working and I couldn't tell why it was working. And so with anything creative, no matter who you are, it's really helpful to have somebody to bounce ideas off of and help you and guide you. Um, whether that's an editor, whether it's, I had a, I had a writing buddy that I just paid hourly. And like, when I got to the point where I couldn't afford her help anymore, she was like, well, I'll still, I'll still do it. And then just like pay me back later. And so I was like, okay. So yeah, it was really cool. 
So oh, I, got, wow. I got help that I couldn't afford, <laughs> um, but I'm so glad that I did because the book would not be what it was, what it is without that help. Um, mm-hmm. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily be paid help. It could be like, ask your community, like, hey, can I read this chapter to you? I did that sometimes. I was like, hey, uh, ca- guys, can I read this chapter to you in this live stream and give me some notes, give me some feedback. Like, mm-hmm. don't try to do it in a vacuum. Don't try to do it by yourself. You yeah. You need... At least I did, right? Like I'm giving advice based on my experience, but most Mm -hmm. people need accountability. They need support. They need somebody cheering them on and telling them, man, that was a really cool line. So you get that little dopamine hit because you wait until the end of a two year, you know, one or two year project to get that dopamine hit of like, I did a thing. It's Mm -hmm. not, it's too far away. That reward is too far away. So you kind of want to reward yourself as you go. So, you know, whether that's cookies or whether that's like you read it to somebody and they're like, oh, this is really great. Like your, your brain lights up and you're like, cool. I could keep going. Um, But the delayed gratification of like, someday this will be a book. It's just, it's not salient enough for, for most of us. Um, We need, we need the little wins and we need people to share those with. Okay. So basically I need to force my family into helping me write this, this book because they're encouraging me as well. And they're like, we have good memories. We'll help you out. I'm going to, I'm going to get people. I'm going to conscript people and have them be part of my, my writing group. Well, thank you, you so, so yeah. much. I'm, I'm definitely going to do that. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the Lucy pod. Do you want to finish up and say anything, anything exciting coming up about your book, where we can get it? Yeah, so you can get my book. Um, HowToADHDbook.com has links to a bunch of different retailers. Um, the book is technically available anywhere books are sold. Um, so you should be able to get it in Australia. You should be able to get it anywhere in the world. Um, if you are in the UK or India, I believe that that book gets released in March. There's a, a different version of the book, um, okay. just a different cover. It's a paperback cover. Um, so that's, that comes out in March, but the audiobook is available now. The ebook's available now. Um, and yeah, I don't know. Just, well, I forget what the other part of the question was. Anything <laughs> exciting coming up? Anything we can look forward to? Exciting. I'm about to have a baby. I am 30 weeks pregnant today. So I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. Cause like this was, you know, when I was in my twenties, I was like, I am not ready for a child. Like, I don't know if I'll ever be ready for a child. I don't know if I'll ever be stable enough, have the financial stability, have a good solid relationship, Mm -hmm. find a guy who I would trust to raise a child with. Um, But I finally, I got there. It took me a while, right? I'm 41 now. I'm, I'm starting a little late, but a lot of people with the ADHD do. It's fine. It's fine. Who cares? Who cares? I'm the opposite of you. I want a baby straight away. I'm super young. I'm only uh, 22 and I'm like, ah, I want a baby. So if you can do it, then I'm, I'm going to be able to do it. Just got to wait a bit. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, I wish you all the best. And again, just thank you so much. I'm fangirling very much right now. I didn't think I'd get to do this. So I'm really, I'm really honored to have had you on. I'm so glad we got to chat. This is really neat. (laughs) Well, that brings us to the end of an incredible episode here on the Lucy pod. I'd like to once again extend a heartfelt thank you to Jessica for joining me today and sharing her insights, her story into the world of ADHD. It's really, as we said, conversations like these that not only enlighten, but also help in breaking down the barriers and the stereotypes associated with ADHD. I hope this episode has been an eye-opening one for you as it has been for me. 
Uh, Remember that every story, every podcast, every book that is written about ADHD is a step towards in understanding, awareness and empathy. So if you have been touched, moved or excited or I don't know, inspired by today's chat, don't forget to share this episode with friends, family, or anyone you think that could benefit from it. And with that, we wrap up another episode of The Lucy Pod. Thank you all for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe to Jessica's channel, which is How to ADHD, and to purchase her book. Her info will be in the description. And of course, do not forget to stay uh, updated and subscribed to The Lucy Pod for more episodes. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcast. Don't forget to follow, stream, like, and give me a five-star rating and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Thank you so much. Bye.